Hello everybody, this is Keith Pannell welcoming you back to yet another We Are UTL Paso program. Today I'm back in the history department. I never like to get too far from the history department. They've got really interesting academics there, interesting people. And today there's a particular young lady, her name is Erica Edwards. She's an associate professor of history and we're going to find out what she does. And I, she told me she's a Latin Americanist who's particularly interested in the African diaspora in Latin America. That sounds like a big topic, and Erica, I look forward to listening to you. So welcome. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to talk a little bit more about who I am and UTEP Absolutely. and all this good stuff. So, so all good stuff, as all you say. All good stuff. So tell us, who are you? How did you become a, a professor here at UT El Paso? Where do you begin, and what were you thinking when you were a little girl? Did you want to be a faculty member? Way back when. No, I did not. Um, that was not something I was exposed to um, first generation. So no, uh -uh. my first recollection of what I wanted to be was actually a flower. And it was a, a very beautiful experience and one that I appreciate that my mother did not discourage whatsoever. A flower. A flower. Do you remember what type of flower? I don't remember what kind of flower, but I was excited about being, I think they were just so beautiful and I just loved them. And then that shifted very quickly then by the time I was like three or four to an elephant. <laughs> okay. See, so, so the point is that I'm constantly evolving, apparently. And so being an elephant, and, and my mom now thinks for sure it's because I had a stuffed animal. Okay. That was, you know, just. And I, had a tw I have a twin sister, and she knew right away that she wanted to be in law enforcement and a cop. Even back then, I wanted to be an elephant, she wanted to be a cop. So very different paths, I guess. <laughs> Anyways, um, but then... Over time, I think once I was in school, I just really was inspired by and, and, and loved my teacher. So I was like, I want to be a teacher. Okay. And that was it. That's an awesome responsibility that teachers actually carry. Yes. Because I've got lots of children, and they all adored some of their teachers. Mm -hmm. And I liked some of mine, too. Yeah. And, and they lead you into different pathways that you wouldn't have had without their influence. Exactly. And and also, I think their encouragement and their excitement for you also then allows for you to see that learning can be fun. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'll never forget my third grade teacher, Mrs. Flurry. I mean, she was just the best. And I just loved her because I was always involved in helping her out and she was always so encouraging. And I just said, I want to be, you know, a third grade teacher as well. And we're still in touch today, by the way. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, yes. She's um, she's uh, reti obviously retired at this point right now, but she's still my favorite teacher. Where did all this happen? Where did you grow up? So I'm, a, I'm an Air Force brat. Ah. I was actually born in Florida and then raised for a briefly about five years in England. But then eventually we settled in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in a very small, small, small town where... Um, Living on base, it was diverse, but then after the base closed, myself, my sister, my now husband, and another black guy were the only four black students in the entire high school of only about 400 students. And so um, all that was happening, though, and these teachers in that small town were just incredible. 
And I just... Any of the teachers black? None. None? None. Mm-mm. All were white. Since um, you'd been this four or five year period in England, it was just like being back in England. You had white teachers and very few black students in class. Um, yes and no, because I remember on base, again, we were mainly on base in England, ah. but we went to a British nursery. And so I do remember... Um, I do remember them. I remember how much fun we had. I remember eating, uh, learning to eat toast with baked beans on top. <laughs> I remember, yeah. you know, the little egg in the saucer and we had to crack it, yeah. right? Um, and then we also had, which is very sweet from church, Aunt Mrs. Law, and she was Scottish. And she used to have us take naps, of course, and she always used to say, yes, you'll get a treat in the wee fairies. We'll come and drop them off at the stairs when you're done with your nap. And so Mrs. Law, God bless her. Um, so I have wonderful memories, but it was always quite diverse because of the base until about high school when the base closed and then we were. Okay. Yeah. But then anyway, you, you, you had this education. You were obviously enjoying school. Mm-hmm. And at some stage you said, well, look, next stage is college. And there, there was an automatic understanding in your family that you would pursue as much higher education as you could take in yeah. or enjoy. Yeah, in, in that regard, I was a very motivated kind of a nerd. I loved, always loved history. I knew at that point. I had evolved from third grade. Now I wanted to be a high school history teacher. And so it was just like, So well, at every level, you wanted to be a teacher of the level below. Basically, okay. it kept going in that direction. And so I went to Grand Valley State University, okay. close to Grand Rapids, Michigan, western side of the state, and um, majored in history and minored in Spanish and was trucking along, doing what I do, loving everything. And then for us to enter the School of Ed, you have some prerequisites, right? So you have your major and minor, you get that. But then you also have to do a, another year. That's how they, they design the program, which I, I appreciate now. Um, and so one of the prerequisites at Grand Valley was you had to do 25 hours in a school, volunteer. Basically, get into what potentially could be your career and see if you even like it, right? Right, that's very sensible. Very sensible and grateful because I lasted only six hours. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So I was, you know, I wanted to be that teacher that was going to save the world. And I was going to win all these awards. And so that meant, you know, at this point, you know, I was going to um, go to the at-risk schools, you know, that were failing. And yeah, I'll take it on. So very ambitious. Very ambitious. And I'm going to be the one that can connect with these students and they're going to love me. And I learned very quickly, they won't. They didn't. And I got to go. And I was just, I, I was walking out. The, I mean, I only lasted two days. Two days, that's it. Three hours each day. And I was just like, these kids, I'm going to kill them. Do you understand kids. why now? Looking back, what was it that you were incapable of communicating? Or was it all their fault? It wasn't their fault at all. Right. It was realizing that I wasn't prepared. I thought that there would have been a connection, a natural connection, and that I would have been able to reach these students. But 
to be fair, I volunteered to be with not only a school in an at-risk area, but the students that were not doing good within the school and work with them. So one student, for example, was 16 in the eighth grade, Yeah. right? Another one was 15. And so at this point, it was almost as if they were waiting to be emancipated and, and could just move on and drop out. And I'm like, hey, guys, That's let's not what learn you're something, do. Right. you know, so no. that was probably. So that me. was an interesting experience, and it forced you to think about going for graduate school. Well, it made me realize <laughs> I'm about to graduate, and I don't have any other plans in life. Yes. And lo and behold, another amazing professor, Dennis Devlin, um, had approached me a couple years ago and had said, hey, why don't. Why don't you consider this McNair program, which was for minority students, to go to graduate school? And I was, I looked at him, and I was just like, "What's a graduate school?" And I said, "No, I'm not going. I'm going to be done with this, and I'm, uh-huh. I'm done with school." And did your parents agree with that? Because a lot of parents of, of first generation students, they get their first degree, and everyone's saying, "That's it. Okay, now let's go out and work." No, they were fine. It. Oh, they they, yeah. they 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 wanted you to carry on. Well, at that point, I I it was my decision to have, you Good. know, and they were fine. They knew I was going to get a degree, and they were like, okay. And so, um, I thank him for just introducing that that little nugget because three years later, it was knock knock knock. You know, what is this, and what's going on? And I kind of need something to do, and that took me into graduate. So, school. where did you go to school for graduate studies? Florida International University. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, an amazing experience. So a totally different environment again. Yes, Miami, Florida, here I come. Mm -hmm. What did you do? What was your research topic? At that moment, it was... You're in history. It was definitely history. Right. And it was pursuing the black disappearance in Argentina. All right. So straight off the bat. Straight off. I knew that this was what I wanted to do. Okay. And I just was excited about getting involved and so learning about So when you, that. in history, do a thesis, usually turns into papers and books, right? Do you remember what was it that you, your discovery? Because I, I, I presume if it, it, it's like science, but it's different. There's something you discover that nobody else has sort of put together and tweaked to. Mm-hmm. What was your discovery in graduate school that, you know, made people around the world or interested in your area say, ah, that's interesting. That's a clever idea. Um, it was definitely moving beyond what was known. And what was known at this time was black disappearance in Buenos Aires. And I said, I'm going to another city and I'm going to learn about black experiences in Cordoba, Argentina. So that just shifted things completely, both for, as we say, the academics that reside in Argentina that do black histories and the academics in in the U.S. who do black histories because no one has really done black history of Cordoba before. It was always Buenos Aires. And so that's when I was like... I mean, most of us would think from lack of complete information. Argentina is not a great place to go to study black history. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, we're watching yeah. the World Cup now. I think you are also. Yes, And this indeed. is it's the one South American, Central American, North American team that seems devoid of anybody of color. Yeah. That's not totally true, but I mean, you get the point. I do, I do. And many people said, wait a second, you want to study black people? Look at Brazil. You got plenty to go out and look at and, and, and be excited about. But I was interested in this black erasure, right? And and why, how does a country go from what is, you know, on a, if we say on average about 60% of color at the end of the 18th century to less than, than a percent today? Like, how does that happen? 
How does that so happen? That, that's about the numbers then. In Argentina, in Argentina 150 years ago or so? It yeah, was, at the end of the 18th century when the first census was taken. Right. Um, and it was taken throughout the entire, what was then known as the Rio de la Plata, so all the major cities. Um, and what we, what ultimately, it was about 60% were considered to be of color, meaning they were mixed with black, indigenous, known as mestizos, mulatos, castas as a whole. And then within that 60%, about 30% were enslaved, okay? And so you've got quite a diverse-looking population, very much similar to the rest of what is Spanish America, right? There's no, no major contrast. But then, you know, 2010... This question appears on the census, are you of African descent, for the first time in almost like 150 years. And only like 0.37% declared themselves to be that. Um, I mean, the timing was great because I was just finishing up So this up is my... self-identification at both ends. 1800s, the question was also the same. You fill in where you think you fit, or is this somebody coming along and making a statement to you where you fit into this category? Oh, no, definitely. For the 18th century, it would have been somebody going to you, okay. looking, going household to household. You may possibly say that, you know, I'm such and such. They, but they the would record, write down yeah, what they, they wanted. It was okay. their records. All right. And versus, I would say now, you know, 2010, it would be a self-identification process, even okay. though there's some controversy in terms of how it was ultimately asked and who actually got the question. Um, but still, I mean, if you go to Argentina... Whichever way you look at it, that's yeah. a dramatic change. When you, but when you go to Argentina, as I was going to say, I mean, you, you do clearly see a contrast. It's very, very white-looking, Yeah. at least initially. Right. Superficially, it does look like that. You're listening to We Are UTL Paso. I'm Keith Pannell. I'm here with Professor Erica Edwards from the Department of History, a Latin Americanist. So we got to this point then that that's a quite a dramatic alteration from mm -hmm. from 60 percent, 30 percent, whatever, to zero point whatever percent. Talk to us about that. What does that really indicate to you as a, an academic observer and as an analyst? I mean, if you just look at the numbers, it clearly would suggest a dramatic decline and one that can't be just based off of a natural progression. There has to be some outside forces coming in. Because if you just think of children, you having children over time, there would be some level of black presence. You got 30 percent. I mean, come on. So there's outside forces that are influencing this. And as I progress with my own research, and learned about what others have been doing um, in terms of black erasure in Argentina, you just learned there's so many different factors coming in. The first and biggest one, I think, is that you have this major European immigration that comes, you know, comes at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, and that demographically does completely shift and change Argentina. So right. what was the population of those two census? You know, the total population in Argentina in the 1800s, where your first data came from, and to 2010? Um, oh, goodness. I mean, it's just, you're looking at maybe 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 total, possibly, in all of Argentina that were counted. That's always a question, too. I mean, the most recent I remember for the entire country of Argentina today, what was 40 million, a little bit more than 40 million plus people. And so back then when this first census, if I can call it that, was taken, there'd be less than 
A million? Yeah, I would argue that. I didn't realize it was such an empty country back then. Well, and that was one of the reasons why they pushed for immigration. They said to, to, you know, to govern, to populate, to govern, to ultimately let's get people here. It's a beautiful, amazing country. But it's always had a very small population in comparison to the landmass that it has. And, and were there not large numbers of indigenous uh, people living in Argentina before it was called Argentina? There's definitely various ethnic groups that were living there. Um, but I wouldn't, They. it wasn't the Incas, it wasn't the Mayans, it wasn't an Aztecs where they had a massive empire. Um, so they're there, but they weren't in the numbers, I would say, okay. as other places. So then the, the, this change has come about not by expulsion of people of African descent, but by simply dilution, by bringing in people from Southern Europe or Northern Europe too? Well, that's part of it. Right. Okay. Part of it is to acknowledge that European immigration, I mean, the numbers, you know, were just phenomenal when you think of it. And by the beginning of the 20th century, one in five people in all of just Buenos Aires were first or second generation immigrants. OK, so that I just say I put that out there to be responsible. But then on top of that, why then have this call to populate, right, and to govern? Well, that's, I think, the bigger issue is that it was an attempt to and successfully create a raceless country, a modern country, a European country. And to do that meant then to completely erase on all official documentation levels of racial identity. And so if you look at that, that's why I said be careful with the number. If you look at the numbers, right, I mean, you'll see them there at the beginning of the 18th century. But then by mid-19th century, they're all gone. So this is a, this is a don't ask, don't tell sort of. Sort of. Yeah. Or, and just accept that we are a white country and we are proudly, as, you know, presidents continue to say, from a boat, you know. And so there is this concerted effort to and successful effort to create this myth of whiteness and that we are different and we're exceptional because we are Italians who speak Spanish but want to be British kind of ideologies, kind of, you know, everything is from the outside. And I think that is what ultimately then really shifts even how people will identify themselves and also the way that Argentina will view its people of color. Because, you know, over time, it's just you see then that it's just not talked about, as you mentioned. We just don't talk about it. We don't have a racial problem. So when you were doing your studies, you had to go down to Cordoba many times. And there's a smile on your face. For the <laughs> audience, she, she just lit up. I so you know. had a very, very enjoyable experience Yes. in, in Argentina in general. Yes, yes. yes. And I, I cannot stress that enough. Um Going to the archives in Cordoba, you know, it, it was it was an experience um, of of them first learning to trust me and see that I'm I'm a good person, and then once that happened, it was like everything opened up, and you know, and my nickname down there is Airy for Erica, and it was it's I will always be grateful for the archivists, amazing people who just are so militant in a good way for preserving their amazing history 
and then also providing access to those of us that do it. And and I think what was great about it is not a lot of foreigners go to Cordoba. And so, for example, when I went to the main one, the provincial one, and I think I was the fourth American that they've ever had, or at least in, in recent memory. And the first black American, oh, presumably. and black and yeah. woman. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But they asked me, they said, you know, this is now 2006 and seven, and they said, do, do you do you know, you know, this this researcher, Robert Turkovic? He came here in, in 1979. <laughs> I'm like, no, I, I know his work, but I don't know him personally. But then they rattle off two other people's names, and I knew them. So they're like, oh, my goodness. Okay, so right? you're, you're legit. <laughs> now I'm legit. Now I'm in, you know. Um, but being black was also interesting, too, because, you know, as you mentioned, I was, I'm was i sure I was the first and maybe will be the only black historian they'll ever meet. And so they were shocked that I was interested in their history until I said, but I'm interested in black history. And then, oh, okay, that, that kind of makes sense, this diaspora connection, I guess. Um but I'll say something. What's 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 what was you know an interesting process was um, recognizing that my blackness, right in Argentina, and being a woman on the street is very much an exotic experience. So, so imagine every day I'd get cat calls, right, and oh, yes. and all this other disgusting <laughs> language, and then I'd walk into the archive. And then, you know, at first they, they didn't quite trust me, and I had a couple guys try and be inappropriate until finally they were dismissed and. And it was just interesting to be in that kind of, I don't know, two worlds, right? Because once they trust me, saw me as a professor, then I'm Professor Edwards, I'm Dr. Edwards, I'm this and that. Then I go back on the street and literally it's the cat calls and the be careful where how I'm walking and who's you know trying to solicit me for various things. And that was such an interesting... How did you cope with that? Did that, oh, I mean, the, the cat calls and, and the, the other sort of antisocial behavior towards you simply because you were black? Black and a woman, right? Oh, okay, um, yeah. Because a lot of women also experience the cat calls. I just get the racial overtones yeah. with it. I think what I, I had to learn is to watch what other women did. And you didn't it, respond. I mean, you, no. That would have been no. Not, that would just edge, egg them on, excuse me. Right. And so I had to learn to just walk and look down. And walk quickly and just ignore it. Because I was doing what the other woman did when it came to cat calls. That was very difficult as an American woman. Yeah, no, absolutely. Where we look you in the eye and we'll say some choice words right back to you, right? Yeah. And I couldn't do that there. And so it was learning the the cultural response was, you know. Have you written about that? Yeah. That particular part? Yeah. Right. I yeah, mean, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. not the history per se. No, it's just this is personal... being a black woman and, you know, Doing the research and that's and what that what that was like. Yeah, I have I have written about it. Yeah, and it's it's maybe I should write more about it. But it was such a it's such an experience to have to deal with that. And I remember one day this guy was just following me, just relentless, and I finally got into the the building and slammed the door. And I was just breathing like, oh my gosh, this is just ridiculous. And you know, another researcher came up to me and he was just like, well, why what why don't you just curse him out? Why don't you just? And I'm just looking at him like. Well, you're a guy, and maybe that would work for you, but no, not for me. It's not going to work like that. And so I kind of yeah. took time to just kind of literally, I was, I was so mad, and I just kind of took took about 10 minutes, relaxed, and, and, and went has back to that work. changed at all in the years you've been going? Yes. I mean, you, you, yes. I mean, obviously the particular stalker is gone, but the society in general 
you, you see has become much more civilized, if I can use that word, toward yourself in this case. And I, I yeah, and I, I do want to stress that, you know, these, these incidences luckily were, you know, a couple idiots every once in a while, or a group of, I would say now I would call them idiots that were just maybe young, dumb, and, and just being unfortunate. But um, it did change over time, and I would, I would credit that mainly to the feminist movement that has really shifted that conversation to when I finally went back in 2018, that was the last time, unfortunately, because of COVID, I haven't been able to go back yet. Um, and I was walking around, and I'm like... I'm not hearing anything. I did, wait. I said, wait, wait. Like, I said, what happened? You know, I'd gotten so used to putting on my armor, and I'm walking, I'm not hearing anything. I finally turned to a good friend of mine. I said, what's going on? And she's like, things have changed. Yeah, that's things great. Have changed. And I was like, finally. At the same time, I was like, what a difference. Okay. So now, what are you, what are you researching in this right now when you go back next year, hopefully? Right. What are the archives you're looking for and what conclusions have you made that might need to be modified? So after my book came out and it ended up winning a bunch of awards, which I'm really excited about and very honored and, and grateful for, I just said there's still I didn't say all I wanted to say. What's and the title of the book? The title is called Hiding in Plain Sight, Black Women, the Law and Making of a White Argentine Republic. All right. So I get into what that means to become. Hiding inside reminds me of uh, The Invisible Man. Maybe so. Right? That, that was yeah. a, a great book of yeah. the 60s that I remember reading. But look, at making black women the protagonists, yeah. making them part of this quote-unquote disappearing act, and what that meant for creating a white Argentine republic, which is what we know of it to be today. And when I was done with it, I was excited and happy um, but I was like, there's still something I want to do. Tell me, I mean, these days people are immigrating from all over the world to other countries. I mean, we see all the problems in Central America where people, do people think of going to Argentina? I mean, if you're growing up in Haiti, does Argentina look like a place to go to? And is the Argentine government happy to have immigrants these days? Yes. Who aren't white, obviously. Well, it's interesting because in their constitution, they, they provide for immigration, right? That's dating back to that 19th century moment. Well, it's still in the constitution. And so, yes, Argentina still remains a place for, for new beginnings, for employment opportunities. And so we're seeing more um, immigration and possibly migration from other South American countries. Okay. Haitians as well. Yeah. I met a lot of them actually in Cordoba that were studying at the university. Um, so it still remains, and especially West Africans. Um, so you can imagine when you go back in 10 years from now, or when the next census comes, that this number that you gave out at the beginning, zero point something, now people are going to be much more understanding of who they are, etc. So, and I think that's that's a tribute also to the most recent Afro and Black feminist movements that have now created, for example, the the National Day of Afro-Argentine Culture and History, November eighth. It's oh. a national celebration day today. Um, to commemorate one of these, you know, war heroes. Her name is Maria Remedios de Valle, a black woman, and um, that's the day that she died in the 19th century. Um, 
And so now we celebrate that. So yeah, there's a yeah. lot more yeah. black consciousness coming about. Okay. Um, which is definitely different. You're definitely different to talk to. You're a lot of fun to talk to. That's, uh, I'd like to thank you for being here. I mean, I'm so happy that you have arrived at UT El Paso and you've got a whole career here, which yes. you're excited about. I am. And uh, so, Erica Edwards, Professor of History, thank you very much for being here. Daisy Morales, thank you for putting the program together. And the listener out there, thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed this. Uh, I certainly do. I certainly did. Adios. <laughs>